according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, we are in the book of Isaiah this morning. And where are we? Anybody know? All right. Al wants to do 51 this morning. I guess we will. Isaiah chapter 51. Working our way through week by week. I think we're going to reach 60 by the end of the year and have six more to go uh, whenever we get back in January. So stay tuned. But we, uh, we are in a section, I tell you, that is one of my favorite places in the whole Bible. And um, starting in 48 and going through 49 and the servant songs that we find here, the descriptions of Jesus Christ that we find here written 700 years beforehand. I've been waiting uh, 51 weeks to get to Isaiah 53, so I've got two more weeks to go. <clears throat> Looking forward to that. But for this morning, we've got 23 verses to cover in Isaiah 51. Listen to me. You who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. Her wilderness he will make like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and sound of a melody. Pay attention to me, O my people. All right, let's open with a word of prayer. Ask God the Father to set aside distractions that we might obey the imperatives we've just read to listen and to pay attention. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the blessing that we have to assemble together. Now, Father, you are not an absentee father. You are our father. We are your people. You have messages to communicate to us, and we are commanded to listen. We are commanded to pay attention. And I pray, Father, that we would be humble before your throne of grace this morning to receive the word implanted. I pray that we would listen with a discerning ear, that we would identify that which is applicable to Israel in the Old Testament, that which is applicable to us in the New Testament, that which will be applicable to Israel and us together in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And Father, in all things, as always, we ask for the faithfulness of your Holy Spirit to guide us into the truth. The Word of God is not science or history or math or any other earthly subject matter whereby uh, smarter folks do better than other folks to figure things out. But Father, the Word of God is not dependent on how smart we are to figure these things out. It depends on how faithful you are to faithfully teach us, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So we call upon your faithfulness once again, Father. Open our eyes to the scriptures. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We have an amazing exhortation here to the righteous pursuers. That is, to believing Israel. And what's interesting as this chapter gets started is we have an admonishment that's given to believing Israel. Israel. And it's quite a bit different than other chapters in this book or other messages that we might find throughout the prophets. 
There are so many admonishments that are given to faithless Israel that we uh, tend to uh, just assume that that's what all of them are about, <laughs> that any time we start a chapter with, listen to me, that it's probably some stiff-necked, rebellious Jewish generation that has, doesn't even love the Lord or anything of that nature. But instead, we find that they are pursuers of righteousness. That's what they are presently doing, that they are seeking the Lord. That's what they presently are doing. And so we're not describing unbelievers, we're not describing the unregenerate that hopes to get saved someday, but we are describing true disciples of those who have eternal life, those that have the abundant life that we are promised to have in Christ, whereby we're not only saved and born again with eternal life, going to heaven when we die, but in the meantime that we are pursuing that righteousness. And so in these first eight verses, of which... We've, we've read half of them. We've read down through verse 4 to the pay attention to me, O my people. Let's understand that we are talking, that the Lord is talking to believing Israel. And so, as a point of fact, this generation hasn't arrived yet, <laughs> okay? This is the generation of the millennial kingdom. This is the generation that will get saved during the tribulation. This is the generation of the Jewish people that will accept, they will look upon him whom they pierced, that they will place their faith in the Christ whom they crucified. And it is believing Israel that will survive the tribulation, that will enter into the millennial kingdom, that will then rule the world during the thousand-year reign of Christ on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. And so I want us to see this, and we'll spend some time with us here this morning. There's really three overall sections I want to cover in this chapter. Uh, verses 1 through 8 will be the first section. Then verses 9 through 11, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. And we'll deal with that. It's a call to battle against the dragon, against Rahab. And so you'll spot that in verse 9. You have uh, Rahab cut in pieces and uh, the dragon that gets uh, uh, pierced there in verse 9. And so it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fun portion to get to. Anytime there's dragons and swords and people dying, that's my kind of movie, all right? That's my kind of story. And so we have here in this chapter. Uh, but before we get to that, though, we've got to talk about verses 1 through 8. Then we'll cover 9 through 11 as a unit, and then we'll cover 12 and following. Really... Um, yeah, we'll, we'll take it down through the end of the chapter as we deal with the, uh, the next imperative to rouse yourself, rouse yourself, starting in verse 17 and take it down to the end of the chapter. And we'll see Lord willing and rapture pending. We're going to cover that here today. Believing Israel is admonished to heed God and his word. Understand, first of all, pursuing righteousness. Okay. In this passage and others, it is parallel to seeking the Lord. All right, and we have both uh, descriptions here. You who pursue righteousness and you who seek the Lord, those are placed in poetic tandem. They're placed in parallel with each other. They are equivalent statements. Not only here, but throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. Pursuing righteousness is parallel to seeking the Lord, and both expressions are descriptive of born-again children of God abiding in the Word of God as true disciples. All right. I want to be very clear on that because I think if we're confused on that principle, then we end up misguided for the rest of the chapter. 
we end up thinking that pursuing righteousness and seeking the Lord is limited only, you know, that, that, that the seeker movement is only the movement of an unbeliever who's really wanting to know how he can be saved. All right. But it's, it's bigger than that. Yes, there is a place for that the Bible talks about when the unbeliever is terrified that he's going to die and go to hell. That there, is, there are many places in Scripture that talk about that. And seeking the Lord in those circumstances is very evangelistic, and we want to talk about that. We want to discuss what our role is to be able to give answers to those kind of people when they're seeking those kind of answers, all right? But not here. This is not a, a primarily evangelistic chapter. This is a chapter for believing Israel that has to keep seeking, keep seeking. See, seeking doesn't stop when you get saved. Yes, you found him. Yes, you have eternal life. Yes, he's your savior. Keep seeking him because the rest of our time on this earth is walking with him. The rest of our time in between the, 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 the cross and the crown, right? Between the cross and heaven, Right? There's a whole lot of living going on. And we've got to live that life. We've got to walk with Him by pursuing righteousness and seeking our Savior. And so this is what we deal with. Now, I would start, I'm going to take these slightly out of order. I'm going to start with John chapter 8 in the New Testament as we observe that there's a difference between believing in Him, that's when you get saved, and then seeking Him or listening to His Word, abiding in the Word of God. That's the follow-up. And that's when you are a true disciple. So if you would, you can hold your finger there in Isaiah 51. We'll be back to it before you know it. But as we look at John chapter 8, to me, this is uh, pretty vivid. And I want us to see it here this morning. In John chapter 8, of course, the Lord is ministering. And for the large part, there is uh, a large rejection against him. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the very good moral churchy type people, uh, they don't want to listen to what he has to say. But the sinners were listening, the tax collectors were listening, the prostitutes were listening. A whole crowd of people hungry for truth were listening. And so it should not be surprising that uh, there were many that hated him and wanted to, to kill him. As we see in verse 20 of John chapter 8, he's speaking these words in the treasury And as he taught in the temple, no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. But boy, they wanted to. They wanted to lay hands on him like anything. And yet they weren't permitted to. And we get down to verse 30, we realize many came to believe in him. And that's a blunt statement right there in John 8, 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And thank God for that. And this is what we understand when we recognize that the unbeliever who's going to die and go to hell, he needs to believe in Jesus Christ. It is the only provision for his eternal life. There is no other name given unto heaven by which we must be saved. And so thank God for that. They believed in him. But that's not where it ended. All right? If you think that getting saved is all God wants of you, think again. That's just step one. That is That allows for everything else to take place. And so I like it when Jesus then turns to those who had believed in him. The next message is not for those unbelievers. The next message is only for those who believe in him. When he says, if you continue or abide or remain or dwell, the verb is meno, you have to live in the word of God. If you abide, remain, dwell in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And this is why I've said many times, I'll say it again today, and I'll say it many, many more times, most saved people in the world today are not disciples. 
I believe that there is a larger number of non-disciple regenerate than there are true disciples described by this verse as abiding in the Word of God, living, abiding, remaining, dwelling in the Word of God. I think most believers today, worldwide I'm talking, most Christians today that have eternal life, they visit the Word of God occasionally. They're very sporadic in the seasons in which they get serious about truth. And when they do visit, it's a very short stay, right? It's like an overnight in a cheap hotel. And they're, they're, they're only there for a short time, and uh, they're going to get what they think they want while they're there, and then they're gone, all right? They're not coming back the next day. Abiding, remaining, dwelling in the Word of God, whereby that should describe our lives. That's the normalcy of it. That is where we reside. That is our typical habitation, all right? And that is, the, that is the trait of one who pursues righteousness, of those who seek the Lord, of those that are born-again believers that are true disciples. And then he says, on that basis, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. I think it's pathetic how many believers have positional freedom and not experiential freedom. That they're going to die and go to heaven when they die, but in the meantime, they do not have the present freedom from the very power of sin. They're saved from the penalty of sin, of course but they don't have the freedom from the power of sin on a daily basis. The flesh still dominates them. Worldly thinking still controls their outlook. And uh, on a practical basis, you can't tell much difference between the carnal believer and the unbeliever when it comes down to it on an experiential basis for how they're walking. And so we see it there. All right, now back up with me now, as long as we're in the Gospels. Let's look at Matthew 5 and Matthew 6. I took this a little bit out of order by jumping into Luke, so, uh, into John so fast. But Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 6, we have a couple of instances here where the pursuit of righteousness is mentioned. And in Matthew chapter 5, he's describing this in the Beatitudes as a happiness, a personal happiness state of mind that is really um, uh, your circumstances don't control. We're not slaves to our circumstances. It's not what happens. Our happenstance doesn't make us happy, all right? Even though that's where the word happy comes from, all right? It's not our happiness. It's not by our happenstance. It is the attitude we choose to have when we identify with the will of God in our lives. So blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And every one of these beatitudes, these blessed are's, are the Makarios happiness statements. Happy are, happy are. And in all of these, you'll notice they're descriptive of born-again, regenerate individuals. Not seekers trying to get saved, but born-again individuals. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are the gentle or the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this is the expression that takes us back to Isaiah 51, when we talk about when he says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. He's talking to believing Israel during the tribulation as they stay faithful, as they're anticipating the arrival of their Christ in the millennial kingdom. So happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I guarantee every believer that's come here this morning that's hungering and thirsting for righteousness, if you're a positive to doctrine, if you're hungry for the Word of God, then it could be the worst pastor teacher in the history of the church age that stands up here. 
<laughs> with the most irritating mannerisms and the most confusing modes of speech. Um, it could be the crummiest pastor in the history of the church. But you are hungry for righteousness. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. And God the Holy Spirit will bless you. You will be satisfied. Conversely, if there are other motivations for your present here this day, you may not be satisfied at all. You may walk out of here very dissatisfied, even with the best pastor in the history of the church age standing before you, tongue in cheek. It doesn't matter who the pastor is that stands in front of you. If you're, not, if you're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness, if you're here for any other motivation, there is no satisfaction to be found other than what he has provided in his word. And it goes on. We could read the remainder of the Beatitudes, but I'm short on time. Next chapter, Matthew six thirty three. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. This is not talking to unbelievers, telling them how to get saved. This is talking to believers those that already have eternal life, those that can go to the Father in prayer, those that the Father knows you already need these things before you even ask these things. But be adjusted to spiritual life priority over your temporal life. If you're exalting Bios life over Zoe life, woe be unto you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is the mandate for born-again believers. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we're reading in Isaiah 51 that when Yahweh is speaking to you who pursue righteousness and you who seek the Lord, it is actually a message to born-again, regenerate Jewish people in the tribulation that are anticipating the arrival of their Messiah. Two more, and then we'll return to our text. 1 Timothy 6.11, in one of the pastoral epistles, spending a lot of time in these books as uh, ordination approaches. 1 Timothy 6.11, obviously, uh, there are things to seek. There are things to pursue. There are things to run from. And the list of things to run from precedes verse 11 because it says, flee from these things, you man of God. This is not so that you can get saved. You already are a man of God. You already are saved. In your case, Timothy, you're already a pastor. Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue. And what's the first one on the list? Righteousness. Not the positional righteousness that you, that's imputed to your account when you accept Christ as your Savior, but the experiential righteousness that is built, accrued to your account as on an experiential basis you live the Word of God. Godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight. That's why I say if most aren't even walking this walk, then how are they going to fight this fight? Only disciples can fight. First, you got, though, you've got to be a disciple so that you can walk. So that as if you're walking, then you can be fighting. Don't get these things out of order. All right, 2 Timothy 2.22. I remember this one a lot because it's got all those twos in it. 2 Timothy 2.22. Again, there's flee and pursue. Flee from youthful lusts. Flee from youthful lusts. And there's great advice. We want to tell every teenager that, any young person that. Any old person that, (laughs) you know, I asked Ralph one time, I said, well, what's different in the older lust from the youthful lust? And he says, I can't tell. It seems the same to me. (laughs) Flee from youthful lust. All right. So we preach that. And yeah, we get that. But notice there's four times the amount of the effort that goes into the other side of this story. You're fleeing from one thing. You're pursuing four things and you got friends to help you in the pursuit. Notice that. 
It says, flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. What's first on the list again? Righteousness. Right back to Isaiah 51. You who pursue righteousness, listen to me. Pursue righteousness. And uh, these other items. Peace, uh, faith, love, and peace. With those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Guess what? With your pursuit... And to obey that pursuit, God has provided you, brothers and sisters in Christ. He's provided you godly friends. He's provided you the right, uh, not, the, not the peer pressure on the negative sense, but the, the right biblical reinforcing peer pressure on the positive sense. You're not in this alone. You're not walking this walk by yourself with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And I love that. So pursuing righteousness and seeking the Lord These are both uh, expressions that are descriptive of born-again children of God abiding in the Word of God as true disciples. So understand, as we look back at Isaiah 51 now, believing Israel, this is what's going to get them through the tribulation. Believing Israel is going to remember their past. They're going to faithfully serve the Lord in the tribulation and in the millennium beyond. And then they're going to look forward. They're going to anticipate their future in the new heavens and the new earth. And we have this view here. The poetry on this is, is uh, pretty fun, and we don't have time to get into it, but there's a rock and there's a quarry. All right, there's a, there's a, there's a, a man and a woman. Okay, it's kind of poetry. There's Abraham, there's Sarah. All right, one of those is the rock, one of those is the, the, the quarry. And, uh, but look to these examples. Look to what God has started from two old people that were shriveled up and not able to have kids. And look what he did. All right. From these two. All right. And remember what he's done and look what he's going to do. So believing Israel will remember their past. They will faithfully serve the Lord in the tribulation and the millennium beyond. They will anticipate their future in the new heavens and in the new earth. So pay attention to me, verse 4, O my people. Give ear to me, O my nation. For a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. The Jewish people will finally fulfill what they were designed to fulfill from the very beginning. And sadly, what they've been pretty terrible at for most of the Old Testament history. But they will, in, in the tribulation, oh my, the, the Jewish evangelists are going are gonna to have fruit like you won't believe. So many that can't even be counted, every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. For my righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, my arms will judge the peoples, the coastlands will wait for me, my arm they will and for my arm they will wait expectantly. And so not only surviving the tribulation, but entering into the millennium and all of the present blessings in the millennium, they can just look around and see. Wow, so this, the earth is restored to Eden-like conditions. The lion is going to lie down with the lamb. All of the blessings of, of we've seen in other chapters as well. But then it doesn't stop there. It says, then lift up your eyes to the sky. Look to the earth beneath. All right? Get a good look around you while you're there in the millennium because it's going away. Take a good look at that sky. Take a good look at that earth. All of it is going to be consumed The sky will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. Its inhabitants will die in like manner. Good thing uh, by that point of time, of course, uh, all the earth dwellers will have the opportunity to receive eternal life and uh, because only believers enter into the 
fullness of time on the other side of the millennium. He says, uh, my salvation will be forever. My righteousness will not wane. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. So you're already saved. You have positional righteousness. You better pay attention. A people in whose heart is my law. That's going to happen to the Jewish people during the millennial kingdom. Do not fear the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. At the end of the millennium, Satan is released from the abyss. He is given one final rebellion called the Gog-Magog rebellion of Revelation chapter 20. And the armies of the earth will surround Jerusalem. Thankfully, they'll have Isaiah 51 to look to. And they will not fear, and they will not be dismayed. For the moth will eat them like a garment, and the grub will eat them like wool. I was going to tease the grubs with this verse this morning. It says the one place in the Bible that grub shows up. But my righteousness will be forever. My salvation to all generations. So they have the past to look to, the present to look to, and they can anticipate their future in the new heavens and the new earth. And remember, that's what we're looking for, according to his promise. Have you heard that? We're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We should be focused on what the Lord is focused on, on what He's getting Israel focused on here. And so they respond. In verse 9, it's believing Israel that's issuing the commands. Believing Israel is the speaker for verse 9. And they're telling Yahweh to wake up. All right? Or they are arousing Him to action. Believing Israel rouses, not arouses, rouses God to action. Wake up, wake up. And it's the same verb. It may not be for a person or somebody that's literally asleep. They need to wake up and stop being asleep. Or if they are literally awake, but not exactly the most active fellows in the world, you would use the same exact word. Only there maybe you wouldn't translate it as wake up. Maybe you would just translate it as rouse, rouse yourself, get busy with it. Believing Israel rouses God to action. They're calling upon him. So he's made promises. He's made promises. So are they out of line now in telling him what to do? Do you see the the beauty of this? It's, It's a blessing for us to respond to the word of God. When he has made promises, we can hold him to his promises. We can issue commands in our prayer life. David did it. Moses did it. Jesus did it. All of Israel is doing it here. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? Yes, it was. Was it not you who pierced the dragon? Yes, it was. Was it not you who dried up the sea? Yes, it was. The waters of the great deep who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over. Israel saying here, wait a minute. You're the Lord that parted the Red Sea. (laughs) You can handle this. What can you not handle? And they are rousing him into action because unlike For thousands of years leading up to this, when Israel was in unbelief, when Israel was even in the land in unbelief, this is now believing Israel, responding to the promises, responding to the truth of the word of God, calling upon him whom they pierced, reminding him of what he had pierced in his victory over the dragon. So believing Israel rouses God to action. 
And I love this. This is, this is, this is excellent. This is a form of, of uh, sanctified um, importunity in our prayers. And Jesus taught this. He taught this. He used a widow as his, as his example. He taught this in the gospel record that we go to him in prayer. We imitate him in the, in the prayers that he offered up. He told the Father to glorify him. All right? Do you tell God what to do in your prayers? You can if, in fact, you are compatible with what he has already promised. So he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So you go to him in prayer and say, Father, don't leave me. Don't forsake me. All right? And you can issue that as an imperative. Simple enough, because he's promised he won't. <laughs> okay? And, and we become intimate with the Lord on that basis. And we see this again and again and again. So we rouse him to action. And so uh, he parted the Red Sea for the redeemed to cross over. So it is. And that was just uh, delivering Jews out of one nation. Okay? At the second advent, he's going to redeem all of Israel from everywhere. Global. There will be a global regathering of the Jewish people. So in verse 11, the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion and everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. What he did at the Exodus, what he did to bring Israel out of Egypt, he's going to do on a global basis at the second advent of Jesus Christ. He will regather every Jewish person on the planet. And I suspect it's going to be an awful lot of people that didn't even know they were Jewish. <laughs> All right. I think there's going to be a lot of confusion in folks that say, oh, are we Jewish? I didn't know I was Jewish. <laughs> How does that work? And the Lord's going to know. He'll say, yeah, you're Jewish. You're from the tribe of Issachar. He's going to have it all figured out. He's going to know your tribe. He's going to know your clan. He's going to have everything all laid out. He's going to say, and here is, here is your land grant. Here is your possession. Not you and I, of course, in this room. If you have eternal life already in this room, then you're part of the bride. You're neither Jew nor Gentile. We're going to go in the rapture of the church. I'm talking about those that get saved in the tribulation that didn't even realize they were Jewish. You know, in some respects, I think God is just genius in, in some respects. In every respect, God is genius. But in some respects, I can actually identify part of that. Um, part of what the Jewish people did in, in the medieval history of things is they, they redefined what it means to be a Jew. And they based Jewishness on matrilineal descent. They based Jewishness based upon the mother. If the mother was Jewish, they said, all right, the children are Jewish no matter who the father was. Because in a lot of cases, they didn't know who the father was or it was in question and whatever. And we know who the mom is because here's the baby and here's the mom. Um, and so they switched to a matrilineal, but God never sanctioned that. God, in God's word, it's always father to son, father to son, father to son. And if human beings have lost track, God hasn't. And if the demons have lost track, well, too bad for them. If Satan has lost track, oh, well. Because here's Satan dedicated to trying to exterminate the Jewish race. And I think centuries later... Satan is just as clueless as most of us as to who all the real Jews actually are <laughs> when it comes down to it. Isn't that, isn't that great? In any event, who is this Rahab? I'm going to spend some time with this. If we were teaching this on a more detailed basis, we'd probably stop right here for two or three months just locking in on Leviathan, on Rahab, on the dragon. The dragon Rahab. Don't confuse Rahab, the dragon, with the prostitute from Jericho, all right? And it's sad that in English they both spelled identically because in Hebrew it's not. 
in, in Hebrew it's different spelling, and so it's obvious if we're talking about a dragon or we're talking about uh, a Jericho um, harlot. Okay? But the dragon Rahab, it's a term for Satan. It's a poetic term for Satan, and it's used when Satan is manipulating powers behind the throne, typically Egypt. In uh, Isaiah and in Psalms and, and uh, other passages, uh, it's Egypt that is in view when Rahab, the dragon, is influencing things on this earth. We understand that the dragon was defeated when Israel was redeemed out of Egypt. It was not just an earthly deliverance. It was not just a political freedom for some Jewish slaves to gain their independence and to have an earthly freedom from, uh, the, the, from Pharaoh's dominion to whereby they can you know, file a change of address at the post office and establish their own residency in, in the land of Canaan. All right, That's all in the earthly realm. In the spiritual realm, the dragon was crushed. In the spiritual realm, it was a tremendous victory of Yahweh over Rahab. And in fact, if you ever want to study it out, the ten plagues of Egypt was an absolute repudiation of the entire Egyptian pantheon. You know, if you're going to worship the sun god, well, what do you do when the sun goes dark? What do you do when there's darkness over the whole land? So much for Ra, the sun god, okay? Or the frog god, or the fly god, or all the other gods. Every one of the ten uh, plagues on Egypt was a repudiation of, uh, and they worshiped, even in the sense of the Nile itself being their mother of life, being their, their, the great provision for their lifeblood in, in Egypt. So what does he do? Turns the water, turns the Nile into blood. It was a great spiritual victory over Satan and over the demons, over the, the uh, powers of darkness. We were introduced to this, by the way, way back in chapter 30, 21 weeks ago. Do you remember? Oh yeah, you remember. You remember vividly. You haven't even slept since then. Isaiah 30. I told you there too, Rahab was not the uh, Jericho harlot. Talking about the uh, plundering of Egypt that took place here. Even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty, therefore I have called her Rahab, who has been exterminated. Remember, there was a motion underway for the political leaders to uh, kind of form a treaty with Egypt, and that was going to be their escape. That was going to defend them against the Assyrians. And Yahweh was saying, you don't need Egypt to defend you against the Assyrians. I'm going to defend you against the Assyrians. My angel's going to fly over and kill 187,000 of them in one night. So don't form a treaty with Egypt. What good are they? We've seen that previously. The defeat of Rahab during humanity present such as the Red Sea Exodus. The defeat of Rahab during humanity present echoed an earlier defeat of Rahab during what I call the angelity past. Now, I'm just going to tease you with a little bit of some deeper stuff. All right, We've taught this in the Plan of God series, and if you want more on that, uh, it's on the website or shoot me an email. Uh, we taught this in the Angelology series as well. But the defeat of Satan during the angelity past, okay? Even before, this is the time of the angels before Adam and Eve, right? What we have now is humanity present. And we've been in humanity present ever since Adam and Eve. But prior to humanity present, what did we have? I call it the angelity past, all right? And these are my terms. So if you find anyone using these terms, let me know. I've got copyright on all of this, okay? But the angelity past... This is when originally the dragon himself was pierced in the warfare of 
what we were dealing with there. And you got passages such as Psalm 89.10 and Job 26, verses 12 and 13 that reference Rahab. Not only Rahab, but Rahab and her helpers. Uh, the, the helpers of Rahab, the, the angel minions that followed after him, and the demonic brood, the offspring that are produced in these things. So I apologize if uh, I'm just teasing you with uh, a taste of what takes hours and hours of additional study. But when you're in Isaiah 89, this whole thing is related to the angels. All right, the entire thing is related to the angels. Verse 5 says, The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. Well, who, who are these heavenly inhabitants that are singing this holiness? It's the angels. Who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Understand? Certainly not that one rebellious rascal that said, I will be like the Most High God. He's included in this. Who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty, the sons of El, the the Bnei HaElohim, the sons of God, who among the sons of the mighty is like Yahweh, a God greatly feared in the counsel of his holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him? I shared this with you few weeks ago or maybe a couple months back now already i'm 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 going to stop using the word awesome in any context that is not trembling in reverence before the creator god of the universe he is the only one that inspires awe in this in this respect O Lord, God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You yourself crushed Rahab. You think that's the Jericho harlot? Not a chance. Like one who is slain, you scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them, the north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon shout for joy at your name. North was the seat of power, and Satan wanted that. He wanted to sit in the recesses of the north. Anyway, Psalm 89, there's a deep, deep passage. And Job was aware of some of this, because Job 26, I find interesting. Job had no Bible. Job was a Gentile patriarch before any Hebrew scripture was ever written. And yet he had an understanding of Rahab. The departed spirits tremble. This is Job 26.5. Who are the Raphaim? Who are the departed spirits? Under the waters and their inhabitants, naked as Sheol before him, Abaddon has no covering. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. That's why the north is so significant. Why is the north star the one that's the fixed star? Anyway, um, he wraps up the waters in his clouds and the cloud does not burst under them. He obscures the face of the full moon and spreads his cloud over it. He has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Who's in charge of all this? The pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. He quieted the sea with his power. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. 
If you, it's interesting. If you want more on this, the, the Ugaritic legends, the Babylonian legends, there's even there's all kinds of no shortage of the, the realms of chaos that were opposed to the realms of order. Tiamat, the, the Babylonian goddess, the, the multi-headed dragon Tiamat. Understand that the, the legends are based on reality. It is a multi-headed dragon, and God didn't call her Tiamat. He called her Rahab. If you insist on the Babylonian name, well then, yeah, Tiamat is where you want to turn. By his breath, the heavens are cleared. Okay, remember the Spirit of God was brooding over the surface of the deep. His hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. And of course, that gives us our connection with the prophecies related to the future. Because there is still yet one final future defeat of this dragon. A future defeat of the twisted serpent will be the final eternal uh, defeat. In this, we've already studied in Isaiah 27. Leviathan, the twisted serpent. Now in Isaiah 27, there's no reference to Rahab, but Job gave us that connection between Rahab and the twisted serpent. And here we have the twisted serpent, we have Leviathan, and we have the dragon who lives in the sea. In that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent. He will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. I realize um, if if we were in charge, uh, or I'll just say me, if I was in charge, I would have killed that dragon a long time ago. I'm sick of him. I, you know, I'm, I, I'm disgusted with the way he runs this place. This whole world lies in the power of the wicked one. This, this is the, we sing this is the father's world, but presently has been usurped and Satan runs this place. The whole world lies in the power of the wicked one. And when we want to bring that to an end uh, through our own human effort, we're going to fail. It's going to come to an end when Jesus Christ returns and he himself personally brings it to an end. That's why post-millennialists are so uh, uh, self-defeating. That's why uh, flawed theology will lead you to some very heartbreaking conclusions. Because we can't, uh, you know, make this world a better place. It's getting worse. Jesus Christ will do it. It'll be his hand. It'll be his fierce and great and mighty sword. It will be millennial when you see Revelation chapter 20, when he's first put in chains for a thousand years, and then when he's finally cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. All right. So they're calling him to action, asking him to do something, because he's the one that has pierced the dragon long ago. Was it not you who did this? So here's the Lord's answer. In verse 12, Isaiah 51, 12. He doesn't say, how dare you, Israel? <laughs> he doesn't say, who do you think you are? Where do you get off telling me what to do? Yahweh doesn't say, you know, shut your trap, you loudmouth Jewish people. I'll, uh, I'll do it when I'm darn well, good and ready to do it. How dare you? No. He comforts them. He says, comfort. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Isn't this great? You, uh, who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and the son of man who is made like grass, that you have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, that you fear continually all day long because the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy. But where is the fury of the oppressor? He says, I'm way ahead of you. <laughs> all right. I'm not just the God of the Exodus. I'm the God of Genesis. I'm the God of creation. I'm way ahead of all of this. 
The exile will soon be set free and will not die in the dungeon, nor will his bread be lacking. For I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Why are things as bad as he's permitted them to get? Because in his plan, he's permitted it to get that bad. All right? He was going to glorify himself beyond anything that this world has ever seen. And so the God of comforts, the one who answers them, the Lord your maker is the God of all comfort. Of course, we have a good connection there with 2 Corinthians 1.3. His comfort to believing Israel is going to come through his faithful servant. He says, uh, I stopped before reading verse 16, didn't I? I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand. So to establish the heavens, to found the earth, to say to Zion, you are my people. And this is Jesus Christ himself, the son of God, the God man. He's hidden in the hollow of Yahweh's hand, in the hollow of God the father's hand meaning that he's keeping him close until such time as he's ready to spring him forth. But he's going to be faithful. He was faithful at creation. He's faithful every step of the way to establish the heavens, did that. To found the earth, did that. And to say to Zion, you are my people. He's going to do that. All right, He will stand in, in Israel and take his seat on the throne of David and say to Zion, you are my people. He will be as faithful in second advent as Jesus Christ has ever been faithful to the Father. In creation, in first advent, at the cross. When has Jesus ever failed the Father? (laughs) Okay? Trick question. Never. He has never failed the Father. He never will fail the Father. That's why you're saved. That's why I'm saved. Because He went to the cross and He accepted your sins. He died for your sins. Because He was faithful to the Father. You and I have eternal life because Jesus was faithful to the Father. That's a beautiful thing. His comfort to believing Israel will come through his faithful servant. And we studied that a little bit too in 2 Corinthians, right? The God of peace, the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies. And we want him to just kind of directly infuse that straight to us, right? We want just His power to kind of glow from heaven and we want to kind of be filled with this kind of a, um, I don't know, like a glowing radiation field of, of divine comfort, all right? But when we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it doesn't work like that. He actually uses instruments. He uses tools. He uses people. He uses fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, who come along and they extend the Father's comfort to you because they themselves have received that comfort in their own season of testing. Similar aspect here. The the God of mercies, the Father of all comfort, is sending comfort to the nation of Israel, but it's going to come to them through the person of His Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He will comfort His nation when He takes the Davidic throne, when He takes office. It's it's mind-boggling to me. It shouldn't be. But how many people are looking at an election, looking at a politician, looking at whoever on whatever ballot, as if somehow if we vote for just the right guy, he's going to step into office. And the minute he's in the Oval Office, then here comes comfort to our nation. Well, wait a minute. Okay. Do you have some kind of a messianic expectation of the ballot box? 
It will happen when Jesus Christ is seated on David's throne. And in the meantime, Satan runs this place. We want to be clear on that. Anyway, that language of the hollow of the hand, the shadow of my hand, um, we had that a couple weeks ago. You might remember in 49.2, the faithful servant. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. That not only would God enter into the world, but he would do so through the pregnancy of the virgin birth. That the virgin would conceive and bear a son. And here's Jesus born in the manger, born in Bethlehem. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. There it is. He has concealed me. He has made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. And until such time as he lifts off that hand and lets the conqueror go forth, until such time, we have to stay faithful. Israel has to stay faithful. Believers are required to live by faith and anticipate that the Father in his wisdom is going to be faithful to make these things happen. All right, now, the last part of the chapter. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself. Yahweh now is speaking back to Jerusalem. They had told him to rouse himself. And it's unfortunate. Um, In my Bible anyway, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible this morning. In verse 9, it's awake, 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 right? There's three awakes there in verse 9. Awake, awake, put on the strength, O arm of the Lord, awake, there's a third one, as in the days of old. And those are all rendered as awake. In verse 17, it's rouse yourself, rouse yourself. And it's the same Hebrew imperative. It's the same Hebrew words, the same command. And I don't know if, I don't know, maybe they just wanted variety or they just wanted, they thought it was too tedious or too redundant. I don't know why they chose to change their uh, translation that way. I prefer, uh, I don't mind redundancy. I kind of like tediousness. I, you, uh, yeah, you say amen. Um, I like tediousness. And to me, if the Holy Spirit is making a point over and over and over again, well then, by golly, I'm going to make that point over and over and over again. It's important. And so it's the same, rouse yourself, rouse yourself, in verse 17. comes back again in chapter 52. So if uh, you come back next week, uh, how does chapter 52 start? Mm-hmm. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself, and clothe yourself. Okay? Don't just wake up, get dressed. But that's next week. Don't get dressed till next week. All right. <laughs> what are we dealing with here? Oh, the second half of this chapter is fun. So Israel is now rousing Yahweh so that he can deliver them in the tribulation and enter them into the millennial kingdom. And now Yahweh is rousing Israel. He's turning it back to them. He says, I am your Adonai, I am your Elohim. This is Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. This is the most holy name for God anywhere in the Bible. So holy that the Jewish people won't pronounce it out loud. Go to a, visit a synagogue sometime, visit a temple sometime. They won't say Yahweh. It'll, they'll be reading, they'll be singing, whatever they do, they'll switch it to Adonai every time. They'll say Adonai. I don't mind saying Yahweh, I'm okay with it. Yahweh. He says, I am, he says, listen to me, rouse yourselves. Verse 17, because this is Yahweh speaking. Um, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your Elohim. 
22, by the way, if you peek on down to verse 22, I'm kind of taking this last paragraph out of order. But thus says Yahweh, I'm sorry, no, thus says your Adonai, Yahweh, even your Elohim, who contends for his people. I am the one that contends for you. Okay, the Greeks have Zeus and the Egyptians have Ra and the Romans have Jupiter and whatever. The Babylonians have Marduk, okay, and whatever. All these other nations have all of their chief gods, but you've got me and I'm taking care of you. And so here is your Adonai. That's the first use of Lord there. And you might notice that it's a lowercase O-R-D. But in the second use of Lord, you probably, depending on what Bible you're reading, you may have all capitals on that. Do you see that? That second Lord has a capital O, capital R, capital D, right? And that's called the all caps function or the small caps function. Um, and, and every time your Bible does that, New American Standard does that, New King James does that, Holman does that, most of the modern English translations will do that. They do that specifically to highlight the uses of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And so the first one is your Adonai, thus says your Adonai, Yahweh, even your Elohim, who contends for his people. Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling. You had enough now. Okay. You ever take the cup out of somebody's hand because they've had enough? All right. Or has anyone taken the cup out of your hand because they... All right, no confessions or anything. Not my business. I don't know. I don't want to know. Okay? That's, that's, all those sins are under the blood of Christ. And I'm just illustrating that there comes a time that you say, that's it. No more. You are drunk enough. And that's what's happening here. In this case, the drunkenness is on the wrath of God. And it's the cup of wrath that he has assigned to them. But he has not assigned to them an infinite amount of wrath. He has not assigned to them an eternal wrath. He's assigned to them a finite temporal wrath. And he cuts it off when he's done. When it has accomplished the purpose for when he sent it. Then it's time to turn the wrath to everybody else now that has to drink it. And not only do they have to drink it, they got to drink the dregs. They got to drink it down. They can't stop drinking. All right. There's a little bit of imagery on this. And um, again, the term dregs, I think, is interesting. And then there's the, uh, they only think that they've drunk the dregs. There's, uh, they're, they're not at all drinking what the Gentiles are going to be drinking. So, verses 17 through 23, and then the follow-up to this is going to come in 52, 1 and 2. So, Yahweh is going to twice rouse believing Israel to action. I find it interesting. He never has any expectations of the unbeliever. He doesn't rouse unbelieving Israel to action. <laughs> they're just doing what they're doing. They're serving the, uh, the, the devil. They're doing what they're doing. He doesn't have much expectation and commands them to do very little. But believing Israel gets commanded And twice now, he's arousing them to action. Believing Israel must drink, must drink the dregs of Yahweh's wrath. In other words, keep drinking until he says stop. Keep drinking until he says stop. But you realize, man, when you get to the bottom of the cup, it's kind of coffee grounds and nasty. I didn't say stop. Keep drinking. All right? 
Some things you get to the bottom and there's a worm. All right. I mean, the bottom is not pleasant in many situations. Keep drinking. And this, you know, this, um, it's vivid. Boy, it gets people's attention. It, they can relate. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself. Back to verse 17 now. Arise, O Jerusalem. Yeah, tell a drunk person to stand up. That, that, that works well. You who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling, you have drained to the dregs. You have drained to the dregs. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne, nor is there one to take her by the hand among all the sons she has reared. When you are this impaired, you're not getting home on your own. Someone's going to take you by the hand and you may not even remember it the next day. Man, how did I get here? And here's the thing. Not only are you drunk, not only are you hopeless, you're also helpless. There is nobody, there's no Jewish person ever been born qualified to deliver Israel into the Messianic kingdom, except, uh, guess what? We say none, but guess again, there actually is one. He's the one and he's the only. And he will take you by the hand. He will guide you. He will, in fact, deliver you. But apart from him, there is none. There is none. Verse 19 says, These two things have befallen you. Who will mourn for you? The devastation and destruction, famine and sword. How shall I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie helpless at the head of every street, like an antelope in a net, full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. That's kind of a bad spot to be in, right? Well, guess what? It's going to turn. Thankfully, it's going to turn. The cup will be taken from their hands. It's going to be handed to the Gentiles instead. They've got to come under some of God's wrath as well. If you want more on this, uh, Ezekiel 23 has a parallel message. The prophet Ezekiel is a couple generations, or is actually, yeah, about 100 years later, and uh, 150 years later even. And he is in the captivity. He is he's receiving his vision from Babylon. In Ezekiel 23, it's a bit of a mature chapter, by the way, so with caution. But uh, as you read through this, 31 through 35, you have walked in the way of your sister. This is talking to Judah now and rebuking them for not paying attention to Israel's example. You have walked in the way of your sister, therefore I will give her a cup, give her cup into your hand. So this is what happens. You should have learned from them and their cup, and you haven't. Now you get the cup. Thus says the Lord God, you will drink your sister's cup, which is deep and wide. Okay? I don't know why we have that deep and wide song for the kiddos, but there it is. You will be laughed at and held in derision. It contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow. The cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samira, you will drink it and drain it. Then you will gnaw its fragments and tear your breasts. For I have spoken, declares the Lord your God. And it goes back into other areas, things that the chapter started with. Okay, uh, But there it is. Believing Israel must drink the dregs of Yahweh's wrath. In fact, until they respond to his wrath, they will not be humbled to call upon him for their salvation. It takes that kind of wrath. Once Israel is so disciplined, the cup of reeling will pass to the nations. 
the cup of reeling will pass to the nations. And so we go to verses 21 through 23 of our chapter this morning. Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. So you get this, it's a metaphor. We're talking about the wrath of God and how he's dealing with the nation. Thus says the Lord, says your Lord, the Lord, even your God who contends for his people, behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. Isn't that beautiful? Because this is tribulation. We realize in the millennium, a thousand years later, Israel is still the faithful nation. At the Gog-Magog rebellion at the end of the millennium, Israel is the one faithful nation. Who would have thought that? (laughs) Without, if all I had to go by in Old Testament, I'd never believe it. All right, but we see it spelled out that way in Revelation chapter 20. Israel stays faithful when Satan is released from the abyss. I will never again, you will never drink it again. I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, lie down and we may walk over you. You know, anybody in your life wants you to be the doormat? Anybody in your life wants you to be the sidewalk? They can just walk all over you? Yeah, just lay down there. Would you? I'm going to walk over you today. You've even made your back like the ground like the street for those who walk over it. <laughs> yeah, so your backside becomes the pavement and the Gentiles are just walking all over you. That's the, the language of this. So it turns to the Gentiles. We'll have some fun with it in Jeremiah. Jeremiah actually takes a, a world tour in a dream with a cup of wine and he approaches every one of these Gentile kings to make them drink from this cup in... Uh, Jeremiah 25, but I'm running out of time. So you can look that up if you'd like. Jeremiah 25, verses 15 through 29. Or you can just wait for uh, about 40 more weeks. We'll be there because we're going to finish Isaiah and we're going to turn to Jeremiah. And uh, be there before you know it. Psalm 75, though. Let me grab that one. Psalm 75, 6 through 8. For not from the east nor the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation. Where is Israel going to turn? Is there salvation coming from the east? Is it coming from the west? Where is their Messiah? Where is their Savior? But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed. He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. All right, it's a psalm of Asaph. Isaiah is in perfect conformity to this, and so is Jeremiah, by the way, when we get to Jeremiah 25. There is no question this cup of wrath is tribulational in fulfillment. You will read commentaries, you will read scholars, you will read experts, you will read morons, all right, that will try to convince you that all of this wrath is done, it's over, it's past fulfilled with Antiochus Epiphanes or fulfilled with uh, the Roman destruction of 70 AD or fulfilled somewhere. They don't view any of this as yet future, but it has to be future. Revelation 14, verses 9 through 12. My last passage before we dismiss. Revelation 14. There is no question that this cup of wrath is tribulational in its fulfillment. It hasn't happened yet. 
Revelation 14. Verse 9, another angel, a third one, followed them along with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast in his image, receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength. See, he's still mixing it. It's not strong enough yet. You know, I mean, we understand how fermentation works. We understand how strength works. We understand how you can mix it in a certain way to increase the, uh, the content of it. At least in theory, if not in fact. Okay? And God is still mixing. He's still mixing. He's still mixing. He's still mixing. And you think, how much stronger can it possibly get? Full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. See, the unbelievers in the tribulation that take the mark of the beast, this is the cup they're drinking. Believers, of course, won't drink this cup. They won't take the mark of the beast. They'll be persecuted. They'll be executed. They won't be allowed to buy and sell. They're going to have to go to an underground economy. They're going to be the the, uh, underground movement of the tribulation. God will take care of them. But these guys are going to be drinking. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So it's future. It has not yet happened. This is what the tribulational martyrs are going to have to deal with and what the tribulational unbelievers are going to swallow. Here is the perseverance of the saints. It's right there. Not in some Calvinistic theology book. All right. Father, I thank you for Isaiah the prophet. I thank you for his messages. I thank you for the promises of temporal wrath versus eternal wrath, of the blessings to be your children. I thank you, Father, for the eternal life that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone sitting here this morning that is not yet a member of the royal family of God, anybody this morning that may be listening to this message and considering that, uh, that they could die today. And if they die today, they could go to hell. I ask, Father, that they might consider these scriptures. They might turn to you and realize that Jesus Christ died on the cross. He took the wrath for all of our sins. And Father, by faith in Christ, anybody can receive eternal life. I thank you, Father, for your faithfulness in these things, for your blessings to lead us in the truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.